This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. We're really talking about here is whether suicide should be medicalized, whether physicians should be enablers, participants, abettors, and providers of suicide. Hey everyone, welcome to another great Psych Debates episode. It's Dr. Monty Altahami and Dr. Jonathan Nemias, your favorite psychiatry residents. This time we are discussing physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. It's great. It's great. There's a lot to talk about. I'm excited for this one. We are joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Mark Comrade, a man who wears many hats as a professional, but most importantly, he's an activist. He's a renowned psychiatrist, avid writer, speaker, medical ethicist who served on many of the American Psychiatric Association ethics boards, turned activist against the growing trend of physician-assisted suicide. At the crux of today's debate is a major question about the ethics of assisted suicide and the role doctors should play in it. It goes to the heart of the Hippocratic Oath. Stick around for this exciting debate and you shall get the answer. I'm very excited for this debate because there are so many feelings around this topic. Uh, People have a lot of, suicide is so, so common that inevitably somebody is going to know somebody or know somebody that knows somebody that has actually committed suicide. And so to actually discuss the ethics behind this and the the benefits and also drawbacks from a suicidal, not suicidal, societal level uh, will be, I think, very interesting. And we have a a particularly eloquent uh, speaker this day. So very, very excited to hear what he has to say. Visit us at psychdebates.com, the home of mental health debates, discussion, and education. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to our podcast so you are so you are updated when we release our new episodes. Visit us at psychdebates.com where we are developing a platform for the important discussions about mental health and get access to our episodes, get a sneak peek of future episodes and coming narrative projects. Subscribe to our newsletter and leave us comments or recommendations for future episodes. Again, guys, the way we improve the quality of debate and put the ego of the combatants aside is by assigning debate positions based off coin toss. This gives us an opportunity to learn more and more each week and to think differently. The positions we debate do not represent the positions that we would normally hold, but the results of that random assignment. And again, Remember, guys, the information we share here and discuss is for educational reasons only. Without any further delay, the Psych Debates House calls on the motion for debate, and we begin with the proposition speaker, who will be me, taking a stance against physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. For the debate, followed by Jonathan, who will argue that physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia can be a form of compassion. Stick around for after debate for the lively discussion with Dr. Mark Comrade. Primum non nocere, first do no harm. I remember reading the Hippocratic Oath on my first day of medical school and then on my last day of medical school. 
and again as I started my internship as a newly minted physician. Ladies and gentlemen, euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide are on the rise. The concept is millennia old and has been debated since then. The legal definitions change from region to region, but the gist of it today is that one can volunteer request for assistance with committing suicide. Globally today, the assisting party is a physician. Typically, it's seen as an option for those who have such severe suffering that further continuation of their lives can be considered cruel and painful. This is why globally and generally speaking, it has been reserved for palliative care and in patients in severe unremitting pain or debility. Most recently, the topic has been gaining further traction as there has been an increase globally in the liberalization and practice to include broader definitions of suffering, such as a subjective feeling or perception by the patient that their condition is unsufferable. And this may include psychiatric conditions and even ones where emotional dysregulation is known to lead to increased suicidal wishes and thoughts. This is, is a, this is a slippery slope and is quite frightening for a number of reasons. Well, for one, it's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. Creating the option for suicide as part of medical treatment will create harmful effects to patients who have underlying problems that can be treated, whether it be physical or psychological. And having the doctors committed can be seen as a public endorsement of suicide. Secondly, patients have second other options. Um, there's a whole specialty devoted to the end-of-life care that focuses on creating comfort at the end of life, and that is palliative care. And part of their arsenal is controlling pain. And this does not include creating death in patients. Having a physician assist with the suicide is like an endorsement. It's like a criminal going to the police to assist them with robbing a bank. Thirdly, and equally as important, is the question of capacity and competence. And this is always going to come up if someone is in such severe pain that that is uncontrolled or psychological decompensation, that the question of capacity has to come up. Do these patients, clients, people have the capacity to make the decision and have the competence to make that decision? And this is always going to be one that is difficult to determine, especially in the setting of severe pain or psychological decompensation. It's our ethical obligation to do anything to reduce harm to the patient. And inducing death is the most harmful thing that, that can be done by, by a physician to a patient. And for all these reasons, I wish to stand for this motion. The House regrets the rise of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Well, this is Jonathan, and I'm going to argue for the pro-physician-assisted suicide stance in this debate. Um, Physician-assisted suicide is really a reflection of giving our patients the utmost autonomy to make the decisions that they want to make in their life. Um, if we are not giving them a choice to actually commit suicide, then we are saying that you deserve to suffer. Um, this is a question that comes up actually not too uncommonly in psychiatry, even though our job is essentially to keep people from wanting to kill themselves. Um, what they'll, they'll come to us or they'll be brought to us actually is what more often happens by their family or the law enforcement or, um, or some other person. And uh, they'll tell us that they want to end their lives. And we say, well, no, you have a mental disorder that's making you say that. You don't actually want to end your life. And there's a lot more out there if you can just get past this mental disorder. 
And so we give them medicines, we give them therapy, and they end up uh, sometimes changing their mind and sometimes not. Uh, I'd like to tell you a story about a patient that did not end up changing her mind. And I'm going to keep the specifics of this story um, confidential out of respect for the patient that I had. Essentially, this is a patient that had borderline personality disorder, which one of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder is chronic suicidal ideation. So consistently feeling the some level of the urge of or desire to not be alive, um, not even necessarily to kill oneself, but just not wanting to be alive. And this is distinct from depression. And you can have both borderline personality disorder and depression. Um, but this person, um, while they felt depressed sometimes, they actually did not meet criteria for major depressive disorder and, and just had borderline personality disorder. Uh, so this is a person who came to the hospital um, after a, with, with strong desire to kill themselves. Um, and when I met them in the hospital, they said, oh, well, I actually want to leave so I can go and kill myself. Uh, they said that, well, I did not successfully kill myself this time, and so I want you to go so I can actually have the ability to do this. You're, you're preventing me from doing what I want here. Um, before this patient, I actually had considered that, well, this is, this is what we do in psychiatry, and, and really not given it so much more thought than that. We just prevent people from killing themselves. But the patient challenged me more than the average patient would and said, look, I just want to get out of here and have the ability to kill myself later on in my life. I'm not saying that I want to do it right now. I just want to have this in my back pocket so that I can choose to do it if I would want to. And I recognize that I have uh, all of these symptoms that you're describing as borderline personality disorder, but at the same time, I still want to make this decision. And that's in the state of North Carolina, where Duke is, where I go for my residency, that's not legal. We're not able to... Uh, actually assist people in killing themselves and not only that but if somebody says they want to kill themselves then they they meet criteria for involuntary commitment and we have to keep them in the hospital essentially and it it can be more nuanced than that as far as who we let in out of the hospital and who we keep in the hospital but that's generally how things work Um, so in this patient's case I was really obstructing her autonomy to make the choice to kill herself now this is a separate but similar issue to the cases of patients that have physical suffering and also want to end their lives. And I think that this argument can be, can, is the same for those patients that are suffering. Suffering is suffering, and patients should have the right to end their lives if they believe that's the best way to end their suffering. We are so excited for our guest today. Dr. Mark Comrade is a psychiatrist on the teaching faculty of John Hopkins and Shepard Pratt in Baltimore and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Maryland and Tulane. He earned his undergraduate degree in molecular biophysics at Yale University and his medical degree at Duke. Um, He trained in internal medicine psychiatry at John Hopkins and he was an attending psychiatrist on the Treatment Resistant Psychotic Disorders Unit at Trepper Pratt for 15 years, where he continues to train residents in psychotherapy and psychopharmacology. In addition to clinical psychiatry, Dr. Comrade is a medical ethicist. He chaired the Ethics Committee and Ethics Consultation Services for Shepherd Pratt Health System in Maryland for over 25 years. He served on the Ethics Committee of the American Psychiatric Association for six years, which oversees ethics and professionalism for psychiatry in the United States. He's a frequent writer, consultant, lecturer on the issues of psychiatric ethics. He was twice honored 
with the Carol Davis Ethics Award by the American Psychiatric Association for his work in writing, teaching ethics to psychiatrists. Dr. Kamrad, we're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me into this uh, wonderful new enterprise that you have going. I'm uh, very excited for you guys. We wanted to start with a basic question. What is physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia? Well, so let's, let's review some fundamental terms of art. So uh, there are two, fun, uh, two kinds of approaches uh, that really go by different terminologies. One is physician-assisted suicide, and the other is euthanasia. Let me contrast those, medical euthanasia. Physician-assisted suicide uh, is uh, a situation in which, uh, on a patient's request, uh, where legal, a physician evaluates the patient uh, and determines uh, that they satisfy the criteria in that jurisdiction uh, that make them eligible to receive a prescription for a, a lethal dose of medication, uh, which they take to a pharmacy, usually a specialty pharmacy, and it's usually a formulation that involves barbiturates, uh, and that that patient is dispensed a lethal amount of barbiturates, uh, sometimes uh, called a box of barbs, uh, which they take home and uh, they may or may not use at the time or place of their own choosing, not necessarily with any witnesses, not necessarily with any supervision. Once those, uh, the box of barbs is dispensed, there is no further tracking of what happens to it person can store it in their closet uh, indefinitely. Um, hopefully their suicidal granddaughter doesn't discover it uh, and uh, make use of it herself. Um, and uh, we know that in Oregon, for example, uh, we have had uh, some cases recorded where people have sat on these uh, lethal medications for up to four years uh, before using it. So that's physician-assisted suicide. Now, in contrast to that, is euthanasia. And in euthanasia, rather than giving the lethal means to the patient, uh, the chemical guns, so to speak, for the patient to shoot themselves at the time and place of their own choosing, uh, the patient comes to the physician and once they meet all the criteria, uh, that the physician administers a lethal injection, uh, killing the patient with an intravenous concoction uh, that's designed to to kill them. And uh, it's important to note that uh, in the United States, uh, the 12 jurisdictions in which this is, uh, these practices are legal are physician-assisted suicide only. Uh, there is not yet any legalized euthanasia in the United States. In contrast, in uh, all the other countries where uh, these procedures are legal, all, both are available, but when both are available, the experience has been that over 99% of the time, patients choose to outsource the killing to their physician, and it's done by euthanasia, by the doctor's legal in injection. Uh, when given an option, most people do not choose uh, to have physician-assisted suicide. And so that's particularly the case in Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Canada. So those are some definitions of these, uh, how we refer to these practices that are very much on the rise. Uh, so I, I wonder, uh, 
why why the distinction is what I'm wondering and and perhaps there's some history in the United States that makes us feel like we should be saying okay well the doctor should not be the one who actually puts the medicine in the patient um, but I, w- what is that like do you know why that we we have this distinction in, our, in the United States well I think that that in the United States uh, the idea that I, I think there's, it's very complicated uh, I think that it's a combination of a high degree of resistance by American physicians to these practices. And indeed, you know, the American Medical Association and the APA, uh, the American Academy of Clinical Physicians, a number of other organizations have been quite clear that none of these practices are consistent with the role of a physician and are not considered appropriate medical ethics. So for one, I think uh, in our country, uh, doctors have probably been much more uncomfortable with these procedures than in some of these other example countries. Secondly, I think that there is a sense that if indeed you put the means for suicide in the patient's hands, uh, that that would constitute a higher degree of autonomy and self-determination because then it is entirely up to the patient truly whether whether they wish to take their own lives or not. and that at least doctors won't be seen as in a coercive role where they might be if they're by the bedside administering a lethal injection. Uh, That doesn't mean, by the way, that other people may not be in a coercive role, like family members who are exhausted from the caregiving or who have stand to gain in certain ways, uh, both primary and secondary gains from a patient's death. But I think there is an illusion, and I think it is an illusion, uh, that somehow it's a higher degree of autonomy and self-determination if you leave it to the patient uh, to take their own lives. What, what type of systems uh, are in place for this to occur? What types of uh, balances, checks and balances are in place for somebody to end up going down the route of physician-assisted suicide and being able to get a physician-assisted suicide? Right. So um, it depends on what country you're in. Right. So let's distinguish, and I think this is quite important, the uh, European countries, and now, as of two months ago, Canada, uh, who has had euthanasia available since 2016, but uh, unlike the United States, it has been confined to people at the end of their lives. In the United States, in these jurisdictions, it's for people who are said to be terminally ill, which is typically interpreted as people who have six months to live uh, from uh, and die a natural death uh, if, uh, if there were no further interventions. Uh, but in uh, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, and again, three months ago in Canada, they changed the law. Uh, they removed the uh, boundary of end of life or terminal illness. In Canada, the had a unique term called death in the reasonably foreseeable future, which incidentally was not statutorily defined. But in those countries, instead, the criteria uh, are that a patient has a condition that they personally find is intolerable or unsufferable to them, and that their uh, condition is futile or uh, that there are no reasonable means of significant amelioration. 
right? But not that they're terminally ill. And as a result, in those other countries, they have opened the door to people with chronic illnesses to have primarily, as we said before, euthanasia. And in fact, they also have articulated something that we psychiatrists would have long been saying, and that is a principle of parity, and that is uh, emotional and mental suffering is really no different than physical suffering, that suffering is suffering is suffering, uh, and therefore uh, there should be no distinction between what is the underlying cause of either physical or mental suffering, and that opened the door to psychiatric patients also being eligible for euthanasia. And indeed, in the Luxem Luxembourg and the Netherlands combined, there are nearly 200 patients with uh, psychiatric disorders, exclusively psychiatric disorders, not with other kinds of physical illnesses with them, uh, that are granted euthanasia every year because their condition is felt to be insufferable, which is a call that the patient has, and untreatable. And the interesting thing about the untreatable criteria is that untreatable means untreatable according to treatments that the patient will accept. That's changed a little bit in Belgium. That's a little footnote in, in the last two years. But up until the last two years, and by the way, in those countries, the Benelux countries, all of this has been going on since 2002. Uh, but if you say to the patient, well, we have ECT. Well, I'm sorry, I don't want to have ECT. Uh, we have deep brain stimulation. I'm sorry, I don't want to have brain stimulation brain stimulation. We have residential treatment. Uh, we have um, uh, other, you know, ketamine. We have state-of-the-art treatments. So the patient is allowed to refuse certain treatments. That has been an acceptable standard in medical ethics that patients, if they're considered competent, uh, and that's a whole other controversy, competency and capacity, uh, have a right to refuse treatment. Uh, and say what they're willing to have or not. So that means, for example, in uh, Belgium and the Netherlands, 50% of patients uh, have, uh, who are, have been granted euthanasia, their primary diagnosis is personality disorder. And we psychiatrists wouldn't be surprised to find out that most of those people, at least half of them, have borderline personality disorder something that carries with it uh, a lot of chronic suicidality as a way of coping and suicide attempts and so forth. So interestingly, in the Netherlands, uh, we have learned that fewer than half of those patients who have been euthanized because of unsufferable and allegedly untreatable personality disorder, uh, fewer than half of them ever had psychotherapy, ever have psychotherapy. Certainly, I think we would agree a fundamental intervention for conditions like borderline personality disorder because they have a right to refuse that. As I said, in Belgium recently, they've changed that for psychiatric patients, unlike other patients, psychiatric patients uh, cannot be granted euthanasia if they're still refusing an any evidence-based treatment. Uh, but that came after a great deal of protest and agitation. Now, let me tell you, uh, so here in the United States, we have to be, uh, patients have to be terminally ill. Uh, 
and they have to be found to have capacity or competency. Uh, what is not required in any jurisdictions in the United States uh, that have this, uh, again, 12, 12 places, 11 states in the District of Columbia now, uh, what is not required is anybody who has special expertise in assessing capacity to see the patient. I, wanna, uh, I consider that capacity assessment uh, is actually a very uh, specialized skill set, even in psychiatry. Uh, it tends to be particularly in the wheelhouse of forensic psychiatrists and uh, CNL psychiatrists. Uh, and frankly, as a general psychiatrist myself, I actually do not consider myself to have adequate expertise to evaluate capacity. And besides which, all of the techniques that we have in the context in which capacity is evaluated have never before been the capacity to decide whether or not uh, you can commit suicide or you can have somebody else kill you. So, uh, however, no jurisdiction requires a consultation with any specialist in capacity evaluation that the evaluating physician is typically a primary care physician or an oncologist commonly uh, is left to their own judgment to either decide for themselves whether the patient has capacity or decide for themselves whether a patient has an interfering psychiatric disorder that may be influencing their decision. And if, if the evaluating physician or the second opinion physician, there are two opinions, uh, uh, think that there might be an issue with capacity or a psychiatric disorder, they have the option, the option of referring the patient to a psychiatrist or other kind of mental health professional. It doesn't have to be a psychiatrist that specializes in capacity assessment. Putting psychiatrists in the position of basically sort of ruling out uh, incapacity uh, and also ruling out uh, treatable mental disorders. Uh, and by the way, as if the only time that we can help people is if they have a diagnosable mental disorder. I want to assert that we in psychiatry actually have a skill set to help demoralized people, hopeless people, people who are having trouble coping, independent of what their psychiatric diagnosis is, which also makes me want to add that in no jurisdiction in the world or in the United States are people that are presenting for euthanasia required to have an attempt at mental health treatment, to give a shot, to give us an opportunity to- In the clarity. United States, do, uh, do patients who are, patients that are getting physician-assisted suicide or are, are going down that route, can they have that terminal condition be a psychiatric, only no. a psychiatric condition? Not okay. in the United States. Okay. And so that's- There's a lot the, of, uh, yeah, like very, um, it sounds like different opinions that are kind of fighting each other. Uh, on there's there's on one side we want to give the patient as much autonomy as possible and then and here in the united states it sounds as if we're very very emotional and it's a, it's a mo emotionally charged topic you know a lot of people know folks that have killed themselves um and it's it's left a lot of just trauma and unresolved feelings in the family um or the, the loved ones of that individual and, e and even not and so it, it, I, you know, it, it makes me think kind of, 
when we're when we're doing inpatient psychiatry like monty and i on our rotations we essentially don't even think about this question at all we say somebody wants to kill themselves oh well they must have a mental disorder that makes them want to kill themselves and so we cannot absolutely we absolutely cannot let them do that and so we're going to keep them here until they say they're not going to kill themselves essentially and and it's happened and i was going to tell one of these stories in in the debate section of this uh podcast uh, about you know, it, it comes up all the time and particularly with the personality disorder patients where they just want to be able to kill themselves and we're saying no this is because of a mental disorder that you think this way and because of that and because you know, if you were to leave here and you were to kill yourself then I, I could be liable for that I'm going to keep you in the hospital for days weeks sometimes months and then put you in a very supervised setting for a long period of time until you essentially agree with me that you shouldn't kill you want to kill yourself <laughs> Yeah, and, and that kind of brings up the question, Jonathan, is like, what, what is the ethical basis uh, for suicide? Which is a very broad question, I guess. Is, is suicide ever ethical? And um, I guess that's, that, that's what we're discussing today. And I, we're really you know, talking about here is whether suicide should be medicalized, whether physicians should be enablers, participants, abettors, and providers of suicide. Whether that's giving the patient the means uh, with the intention of causing death or directly killing them with uh, a lethal injection, even though it's voluntary. And I think that is actually the main ethical issue. And frankly, that's my point of departure. Although I'm prepared to discuss with you why I think it's bad public policy to set up a system where there are some people who are forbidden from uh, or prevented from uh, committing suicide and a small fraction of people who are allowed and actually enabled and provided suicide, aside from the public policy as a physician, as a medical ethicist, what I am uh, uh, concerned about is putting doctors to me medicalize this. I mean, again, if society wants to go ahead and I believe foolishly uh, set up these, uh, these pathways, then I don't think it should happen in the house of medicine. Uh, it should happen across the street. Let it happen in the law school. Let it happen in the school of public policy. You know, let the pharmacists do it. It's not that hard, you know, to, to come up and kill people. But, but killing, you know, we, as the saying goes, you know, in medicine, we, you know, comfort always, uh, cure sometimes, right? And, and kill never. Killing does not belong in the house of medicine. We accompany patients. You know, compassion means to actually suffer with. And Lord knows we psychiatrists probably, we haven't cornered the market on it, but we probably have more robust experience in suffering with patients than most other specialists because we see them for a long time and we see them repeatedly. We set, sit with them for long intervals uh, in each session. Uh, so to, to suffer with our patients, to uh, to accompany them uh, rather than to collude uh, with their suicidality. I think it's a fundamental uh, you know, inversion of the basic ethos of what it means to be a psychiatrist. We help people find the path to a better future. We help people cope with suffering and demoralization. We help shore up defense mechanisms. We help build support systems. Uh, we even, under certain circumstances, if we cannot ameliorate all of suffering, we can even help people make meaning out of suffering. That's what it means to be a psychiatrist. And in fact, I want to assert that it actually what, what it means to be a physician. 
And so, you know, let society stand up a separate profession. Uh, you know, there were four generations of royal executioners uh, in one family in France. You know, we can reestablish that. But uh, it, it, the mighty tree of medicine was built out of the boards of its Hippocratic origins. And the Asclepian of, Hippo of Hippocrates was in ancient Greece, the only place where medicine was practiced, where euthanasia was not practiced. And as a matter of fact, in order to become a student and a practitioner in the ancient Asclepian of Hippocrates on the island of Kos, you actually, unlike anywhere else, you had to subscribe to a set of values. You had to subscribe to a covenantal community. And to do that, you actually took an oath and the oath went through a number of things that you subscribe to. And one of the most distinctive features of the Hippocratic Asclepian and the Hippocratic Oath was the phrase, I will give no man a poison, nor will I counsel anyone else how to do so. So that distinctive origin story of medicine which grew into the mighty tree out of which the house of medicine was built, just like you know, Christianity grew out of the origin of the group centered around Jesus Christ and became the, a flowering set of values over the millennia, uh, that not killing patients uh, is the essence of Hippocratic medicine, whether you still take the Hippocratic oath or not, it's the Hippocratic ethos. Uh, and uh, I think that it's absolutely critical for us to uh, not participate in our patients' demands that we kill them any more than we necessarily give in to their demands for more Xanax. Dr. Comrade, what comes to my mind um, is, you know, I have I, I, I had patients in the past and not too far, not too far ago where patients were in ex kind of an extreme suffering. Um, they had extreme pain. Um, for instance, I had this one patient who had COPD, he had air hunger, he required morphine and fentanyl uh, just to relieve that sense of air hunger. Uh, and he was kind of at his end of life. Um, and do you believe in that context that maybe relieving suffering would be through the way of, if not that he asked, but if, say, he suggested that, hey, doctor, I don't want to go through this anymore. This air hunger is bothersome. I'm living through this 24-7 um, 365 and I don't want to be living this life anymore and as a doctor I can provide the relief of not having ex to have him to experience that air hunger and give him the compassion of what he wants towards the end of his life do you I, think I, that ever is appropriate no I, I I think that you've actually made your own point that he was being given uh, interventions to help him with his air hunger I think that the state of the art of palliative care including all the way through palliative sedation, okay, or supporting people with the not particularly painful voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, uh, VSED, uh, getting out of the way of death and providing maximal comfort. The state of the art, I think, is very sophisticated, underutilized, underavailable. And by the way, just like psychiatric evaluation is not mandatory in any of these jurisdictions as part of this evaluation, palliative care is not mandatory uh, and often, as a matter of fact, not available. So I think that we have adequate technology 
to support people in their distress, in their pain, in their suffering, and stand out of the way of death. And I think that that is a very different ethical posture than administering death and actually killing patients. That is not something that I think is, uh, and, and by the way, palliative care uh, physicians are very, very clear that euthanasia and assisted suicide is not something that is in their toolbox. As a matter of fact, uh, I know the two leading palliative care uh, professional organizations in Canada have both issued statements that says euthanasia is not palliative care and we do not offer a, a palliative care physician should, should not be offering uh, to kill patients uh, on request, but to use uh, every method that we have that actually is effective at comforting patients as your patient was able to receive. So the, these kinds of questions, they, uh, I hear you're saying that this shouldn't be a decision that doctors make. That's, that's not what we do, essentially. It's, I'm not it's, saying it's not a decision we should make. I'm saying it's a practice we shouldn't engage in. It's a practice we, we shouldn't engage in. I'm, I'm wondering if like these these kinds of questions tend to come up when people are in the hospital. I feel like there, there is the population that you were describing earlier, the, perhaps the younger population um, in Europe where they are allowed to actually take part in euthanasia or assisted suicide if they have, um, say, like a mental disorder. Uh, I, I am wondering for this older population as well, Is the, the, the question will probably come up when they're very sick and at the end of their life. And so I, would there be like, say, like a lawyer consult like that, that you would you would see like where you would have somebody that would be able to assess or or give them the medicine that they know would end this person's life, like it, it seems like this would still have to take place in a hospital. Well, uh, not necessarily. I mean, you know, in in the Netherlands, there are these uh, the, a traveling clinic called the Lievenzijnde Clinic, the end of life clinic, uh, although they've renamed it as you know the Euthanasia Specialty Center or something like that, uh, and it travels around. It's a trailer. By the way, they have you know an hour an hour and a half evaluation. They often function as sort of a backup uh, system because if the primary treatment team is not willing to authorize or provide euthanasia, patients have this uh, it's traveling clinic to go to uh, in order to oftentimes, more often than not, uh, get their euthanasia. And by the way, 77% of all psychiatric euthanasias in the Netherlands actually end up happening in this Liebenzijnde clinic because a lot of people don't want to go there, but uh, the doctors there consider themselves uh, moral pioneers and engaging in tremendous virtuous labor uh, and a dirty job, but it has to be done. And so they have you know, a much lower threshold of both about approving and, and providing these things. So uh, look, I think that the whole idea of, you know, to, to, to be able to assess capacity, to rule out coercive effects, uh, to, uh, to be able to really properly investigate the degree of true self-determination and autonomy that patients have in this is a very, very significant job. Uh, it shouldn't be the job of physicians, but, but I, I really do want to say that, that, that a, a, a much higher altitude view I think that it is very, very problematic when you begin to start drawing a line between 
what human beings, so first of all, which human beings are allowed to kill other human beings, uh, which human beings are allowed to be killed by other human beings, even on request. Uh, I think that's a very fundamental change in civilization. And by the way, you know, another ethical principle, uh, the American Medical Association and many others is that physicians shouldn't participate in legal executions uh, for prisoners on death row because that's not a doctor's role, uh, role either. But I think this is, this is a, a tremendous tipping point when you begin to try to parse which human beings are allowed to kill and, and be asked to be killed. And what happens is whenever you draw that line, okay, just on the other side of those line, that line, people understandably with the, in the interest of other values like justice and fairness and parity say, why not me? You know, six months, why not seven months? Why not 12 months, right? Uh, you're allowing it, you know, for people who, uh, who have physical illness, why not mental illness? And as a result in Europe, we've seen not just the theoretical, but an actual profound slippery slope in the living laboratories of the Netherlands and Belgium. So that uh, now uh, you, uh, they're debating uh, and coming very close to, uh, to demedicalizing it, to say, okay, look, if you can have it, if you have a medical condition, why shouldn't you be able to have rational suicide for other reasons? So they're now talking about the criteria such as a completed life or uh, uh, tired of living. Completed life in, is what it's called in Netherlands, tired of living, it's called in Belgium, uh, that are now the leading political party, the D66 party in the Netherlands is now pushing for completed life. And, and, uh, and this actually makes me slightly more comfortable getting it out of the house of medicine by providing an over-the-counter suicide pill that people who are in whatever condition, tired of life, completed life, terminally ill, chronically ill, whatever, uh, that they can have utter and complete autonomy and not even have to go to a doctor in order to get the means that they can provide it for themselves. And just to show you what happens in a culture that becomes besotted with these uh, 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 practices and ideas and a whole generation goes by because now it's uh, 19 years being practiced in the Netherlands and Belgium, uh, a whole generation now has grown up in which this has been uh, allowable. So now three polls in Belgium uh, have come out saying uh, that uh, the majority of people uh, who've taken these polls say that no life extending treatment should be provided for anybody over the age 85. Doesn't matter what their state of health is because they've, they've moved the tipping point between, you know, life worth living and life not worth living. And they've come to, to experience, you know, for tw practically 20 years, people as they come to the end of their lives, choosing to be killed by the physician. By the way, in, in the Flanders region of Belgium, 
which is the Dutch speaking region of Belgium, six out of every 100 human beings who die every year, die at the sharp end of a doctor's needle. Six out of 100. Overall in the country, wow. about two and a half. That's a, that's a huge number. Yeah. I mean, all deaths, all deaths, you know, car accidents, everything. Okay. Six wow. out of 100 people are being killed by their doctors. Why, why is it happening? Why, why, why is it particularly in Europe that this is like taken off and is happening a lot more? What, like, is it, what, what makes their society different that, you know, this is not, you know, it's accepted here in, in at least the United States. Well, of course, Canada now is, is following the right. way of Europe. That's an offer a lot of immigrants from Europe and so forth. That's an interesting question, a complicated question that I think many people have been wrestling with. <clears throat> I think there may be some factors there that may not be so relevant to the United States. Uh, having been to Belgium and spoken in Belgium, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, and, and I'm going to get to your question by way of telling you this little piece. Uh, so the majority of inpatient psychiatric beds in Belgium are run by a Catholic order called the Brothers of Charity, okay? They have over 5,000 psychiatric beds in Belgium. As you might well imagine, as a Catholic order, for uh, uh, they have been resisting having euthanasia available to their patients in their facilities, right? But they've been cooking in the stew of Belgian culture. And also on the board of directors uh, of their medical uh, program are also some lay people who are not brothers, although they're Catholics. Matter of fact, uh, one of them is the former prime minister of Belgium, uh, also the first uh, prime minister of the European Union, Herven von Rompuys. Uh, so in 2016, after having resisted this on Catholic principles since 2002, they decided we, we can't resist any longer. We are going to open our Catholic hospital facilities to the option of euthanasia for our psychiatric patients. Wow, you might well imagine the Pope objected and said, no, you're not, and gave them a certain amount of time to respond. And they did respond. And it was, just, it was just at that point where the Pope said, no, you're not, that I went over and I gave the, a keynote address to uh, the largest uh, a convocation uh, at the largest brother's hospital, psychiatric hospital there. I made a passionate plea as to why, forget about, I mean, you guys can talk about Catholic principles, but I'm going to talk to you about medical ethics, uh, you know, an even older tradition than the Catholic Church that goes back several hundred years more, which is the Hippocratic tradition, uh, and also why I don't think this is good public policy. And, uh, and then they had some other speakers, including some Jesuit priests who got up and made an argument as to why it is okay to do this as a Catholic. And ultimately, uh, whatever hope that I had to dissuade them failed, and they got back to the Pope and said, we're gonna do this. Uh, and the Pope has said, well, in that case, you need to take the the association of Catholic church off your hospitals, because we don't want to be associated with that. So this is, I said, this is by way of answering your question. Uh, there's, uh, I think it's a fair amount of evidence to show that Europe is in a tremendously uh, powerful secular backlash 
against long-standing Catholic traditions. Belgium was one of the most Catholic countries in Europe, for example, uh, and a very, very strong kind of uh, liberal pendulum uh, that is kind of uh, desacralizing and uh, secularizing society. Uh, that I think is part of the story there in a way that it's not in the United States, uh, in which we still have, you know, as you can see, you know, in recent years and recent political events, uh, we still have, you know, quite a strong uh, dialectic going on hmm. between the forces of, you know, those with strong religious beliefs uh, and those who want to have more a humanistic uh, point of, of ethical departure. On those, the differences between those two countries, um, again, just kind of going between Belgium and the United States because we were making the distinction. We know that suicide is on the rise here in the United States. Um, I don't know how is is does physician assisted suicide or euthanasia is that is that something that can curb that or maybe rephrase are the trends the same in Europe? Is suicide also on the rise despite of the rise of this physician assisted euthanasia? Um, that's an methodology. And it's been looked at because uh, one of the concerns, I mean, so, so one argument is uh, this will allow people to have suicide uh, by doctor as opposed to natural suicide and should it might curb suicide. It might be preventative uh, or even allowing people the option to let them peer over the cliff uh, uh, might uh, scare them enough to, to cause them to to retract. So. There have been uh, several interesting studies, one of which shows that uh, in the Netherlands, uh, compared to the surrounding uh, countries that have demographic similarities, okay, that in those surrounding countries, uh, that the trends of suicide had, uh, have been going down of natural suicide wild type suicide, if you will, ordinary suicide, whatever you want to call it, right, uh, have been going down. But since 2002, when they legalized euthanasia, unlike the comparison countries, ordinary suicide in the Netherlands started to go up. So the worry has been the message of suicide contagion. Uh, and that when you begin to say, okay, we have two tiers, right? One tier is the suicides to be prevented, and another tier is the suicide to be provided. What you're doing is you're demonstrating that there is a, a, an uncertainty about suicide, and you're actually uh, in danger of removing one of the actually very instrumental features of, su uh, 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 of suicide prevention which is taboo, the taboo against suicide, which is somewhat different than stigma, right? Stigma is what happens afterwards, right? Taboo is about before. So by saying, okay, suicide is not entirely taboo, we're going to allow suicide for some people, that there's been a, a concern about what effect that's gonna have in possibly promoting suicide contagion. So there was another study, uh, Southern Medical Journal, that looked at uh, uh, Oregon and Washington. And they showed that the rate, uh, they, they all uh, uh, 
legalized their, uh, uh, they were the first states to legalize uh, physician-assisted suicide in the United States. Uh, and it's been shown that after those were legalized, that wild type natural suicide rates not only increased as they have in the rest of the nation, but increased faster than they have in the United States at large. They're one of the faster growing states uh, in terms of the slope, so to speak, of the rise of suicide. So although this is, does not, you know, correlation is not causation, and it certainly doesn't prove cause and effect, it certainly uh, raises a tremendous uh, uh, skepticism against the idea that there's anything preventative about these practices for natural suicide. Uh, and is a beginning of the suggestion of uh, some data that may be pointing towards exacerbating, oxygenating suicide contagion. It, it makes me think more of to what is the true fallback of suicide? If I'm going to be devil's advocate and say like, okay, well, why don't we just let half the people in the world just kill themselves? You know, if, if that's what the contagion leads, uh, eventually leads to. Um, but then there is, uh, in the stories of my patients and, and people I know, the, the just the sadness that I've described before and then the trauma that comes from knowing someone died. I mean, do you see that as perhaps the, like, the downside, like how it emotionally affects people that do choose to survive and continue? Well, and I, I think on the contrary, you know, there was an interesting study that showed that the, the uh, median number of people adversely affected by a suicide is 31, right? So it's a, it's a, a wave that spreads out, that traumatizes a, a, a median of 31 people. Wow. So, uh, and I have that page, that reference if you're interested. So, uh, and uh, there is evidence that, that uh, although the press loves to tell stories of, you know, assisted suicide parties and final goodbyes and romanticizes it, by the way, violating all the principles that we have learned and that the CDC has codified about how not to cover suicide uh, because it can contribute to suicide contagion. Uh, I uh, used to be the psychiatric consultant to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge here in Maryland, where we had every year, you know, a number of suicide jumpings uh, uh, off the bridge. Uh, and a lot of things that we did was we worked with the press about how to properly report this so as to not romanticize it uh, and not create, you know, a sense of drama and poetry and so forth, and actually, you know, issuing the CDC guidelines about proper coverage of this. So when it comes to assisted suicide, you know, all of those principles are thrown out of the window. But despite those stories notwithstanding, there uh, are quite a few stories of families that have been quite traumatized uh, by a family member uh, getting euthanasia or engaging in assisted suicide. Uh, because, you know, this is the patient's choice and it's against the family's wishes. Uh, and rather than the family feeling unburdened and relieved and so forth, uh, they have actually been just as traumatized as wild type suicide. Uh, so, you know, the whole idea that we're doing the families a favor, as a matter of fact, there, there have actually been several lawsuits 
by families against the doctors uh, who granted these uh, or provided these procedures to patients saying that the doctors misunderstood the case, didn't do proper research. Uh, there was even one case uh, in, in the Netherlands where you know the, they had to, uh, the patient who had dementia and by the way, advanced directives for this kind of thing, it's a whole other topic. It's a whole other show you guys can do for advanced directives for assisted suicide. They, they allow it for dementia there. And there was one lady who, you know, they felt, okay, she probably satisfies, you know, now the, what, what she said, she'd want to be euthanized. And they asked her, you know, are you ready? And she didn't understand. And when they tried to start an IV, she struggled and she said, no, no, no. Uh, and she resisted and they tried to uh, sedate her by putting a sedative in her coffee and that didn't work. And ultimately they had to hold her down uh, and strap her down while they inserted the needle and euthanized her. And uh, uh, the family uh, took it to court, sued the doctor, did not succeed, by the way, the family, the lawsuit did not succeed, was up, an appeal that did not succeed. But you know, th those are the kind of scenarios uh, that we may be getting into. And um, you know, in, uh, another thing that we need to be thinking about here is the tension between an individual good and the common good, right? So for, to give a few individuals an opportunity to have this for the, the various reasons, compassionate reasons, uh, reason, reasonable uh, compassion. Uh, the question is, at what price is that for the common good? By elevating autonomy and self-determination as the overriding dominant symbol in many ways allows it to bully away other kinds of values in society. Uh, the value of, of funding state-of-the-art mental health care, state-of-the-art palliative care, uh, the value of any one individual's human life, the value of what it means to be a physician, uh, the, the, the value of, of compassion, uh, a number of other values that begin to suffer for the many in order to be able to provide the apotheosis of autonomy for the few. And let me tell you something about those few. And this has been shown in country after country. Who are the people who are availing themselves of this? They are people who are more educated, who are more white, who are more wealthy, who are more privileged, uh, who have spent their lives having what they want more than other demographics. Uh, being used to, uh, to asking and receiving when they ask. Uh, you do not see uh, uh, other kinds of demographics uh, nearly as participant in it. Uh, uh, of course, it's no surprise that uh, the people who are availing themselves tend to be uh, less affiliated with uh, religious uh, beliefs and, and, and churches and synagogues and so forth. That's it's not that surprising, um, but uh, so it, it, it is the few. And, and I, I do wanna point out that uh, it's, it's few and it's many. So in Canada now, since 2016, uh, 
there have been over 24,000 euthanasias. In Canada, two out of every 100 human beings dies at the end of a doctor's needle deliberately. Uh, so you might say, well, okay, that's still a minority. In Oregon though, uh, Oregon and Washington, it's a much, much smaller percentage. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're allowing these, these fundamental shifts in what it means to be a civilization, what it means to be a physician uh, in the relative balance of values to be there for not exactly a handful, but only a few hundred people a year. Uh, and the consequences of allowing that for a few are quite significant for the many, such as, for, for example, the possibility of increasing suicide contagion. So I think that that's something we need to be thinking about, that difference between the few and the, and the many. And that, you know, that, that, that thought about the few and the many, this like kind of communal versus individualistic um, approach. And also it made me think about like East versus West in a very broad way. Um, I don't know what, what, what's been your experiences with like far Eastern cultures. I know that just kind of growing up and kind of just being around normal, normal cultural experiences, knowing that, for instance, Japanese practice used to practice ritual suicide. And that was seen as something as honorable and acceptable um, in situations where they thought their life is, you know, might have been unsufferable in a lesser than a medical um, paradigm, but more like in a societal paradigm. Is there any differences um, in terms of how those cultures approach suicide or physician assisted suicide? Or is this particularly just in kind of Western uh, parts of Europe and now Canada? Uh, primarily, this is this is a, 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 a European uh, uh, and post-European, uh, you know, New World phenomenon, and to some extent, uh, 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 Australia has now come on board. New Zealand uh, is coming on board, uh, but the European countries, you know, Spain, Ireland is about to come on board. Uh, possibly, the UK seems to be hovering on the edge. Those are where we're seeing it. We're, we're not seeing it <clears throat> so much in, uh, in Eastern cultures, in Slavic cultures. In uh, uh, matter of fact, uh, one of the parliaments that I spoke to was both in uh, Norway and Sweden, uh, where attempts were made to try to promulgate this, uh, and it really didn't go very far. What's the underlying ethic behind trying to propagate this for those countries that, like, for instance, you said the UK and other countries are trying to take those, trying to take it on? It seems like in terms of uh, curbing, um, you know, if we're going to continue with the phrase here, wild-type suicide, it doesn't do that. It's getting worse. Um, and the effects on families still persist to be the same. And the autonomy is, is actually a false sense of autonomy. Why, why are those countries uh, well, taking on these things? It's, it's very popular. It's very popular for one, because, you know, people don't want to think about suffering. A lot of people have experienced uh, those who've suffered at the end of life or for suffered from chronic illnesses and uh, uh, like, did, often did not get adequate care. Uh, and also, I think that uh, there is a, a tremendously high value there uh, placed on, you know, self-determination. I mean, after all, you know, in, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, you know, 
they consider their assisted suicide thing to be in this in, in collinear in the same family as other innovations of self-determination. You know, they like to celebrate we were the first, you know, nation in Europe to to decriminalize homosexuality, to legalize gay marriage, uh, to uh, uh, le legalize prostitution, uh, to legalize marijuana, right? So, you know, allowing people to chart their own course has been a modern tradition uh, in these countries. And, you know, I think that's, that's part of the very much the, the cultural ethos there. Uh, you know, non-mandatory seatbelts, you know, things like that. Uh, no motorcycle helmets, you know, if you don't feel like wearing a motorcycle helmet, th those are all, you know, part of the same tradition of, of self-determination. So I think that, that um, you know, I, I can't necessarily account for it, but, but and these things are, in the general population, uh, you know, it's very, very popular. Although when you do polls, it depends on how you word it. So if you word things as medical aid in dying and take the same question and word it as assisted suicide, you get a very different response, mm -hmm. in a poll, which is one of the problems with polls. Mm -hmm. there. Well, the lesson here is that medical ethics are vulnerable, that we can become unmoored from our long-standing, venerable, and deep traditions of medical ethics when there are rapidly changing social mores that we can get swept up in as citizens as well and begin to unravel our fundamental ethos of what it means to be a physician and become ensorcelled by these uh, uh, moral changes in society and uh, become increasingly seduced into thinking we are participating in a pioneering maneuver of compassion for our patients. And then 10 years later, look back and say, what the hell were we thinking? Yeah. And that is happening now. It's, it's interesting. It, it makes me think this, this new movement of saying that people should have the autonomy to make this decision. These people are probably thinking, oh, I'm very open-minded, but it takes this extra layer of open-mindedness to say that, well, maybe what society seems to be turning to is not the best thing as well at the same time. So it's 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 really fascinating and eye-opening that just to have this conversation right now. So So thank you so much. It is. Thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to uh, declaim uh, and to express my passion about this because I, I really welcome it. Because you guys, your generation, you're going to have to deal with this. You know, I'll be retired or dead, uh, but eventually this country will continue the same slippage. It may go slower than in some of these other countries, but we're going to get there. And in your careers, you're going to be having to face these options and these questions with your psychiatric patients, or certainly if you're doing CNL, your medical patients. It's not in North Carolina yet, but it's coming. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of, an, I guess, as we're coming to a conclusion here, any um, any words or advice for for our generation or for just the layman and the general population about how to approach this and what ways we can advocate um, and what we can do to to 
ensure that that's not the case? Yeah. Well, for your generation, I, I would I think it's, it's very important here for us to, uh, to, to speak with uh, a collect, as a collective, as, uh, a, as a profession. Remember that the, the word profession means to profess. To profess what? To profess a set of values. And those values have been traveling with us as a profession that, we've be, that we are professionalized into both informally and formally when you take your oath uh, and when you're educated, educated about medical ethics, you're educated about medical history. As I think that belonging and becoming uh, active participants in, in medical organizations like the, uh, the uh, American Psychiatric Association and the AMA. So, you know, in my activity in the American Psychiatric Association, I was a member of the Ethics Committee and also the Assembly that crafts proposals for policies. And I, with a couple of colleagues, uh, set up the uh, what became the APA's position statement, specifically designed to send a message across the Atlantic back in 2016 uh, to say that a, an official APA position is we hold with the AMA their ethics, but we also want to say that a psychiatrist should not prescribe or participate in any intervention designed to uh, cause death in a non-terminally ill patient. We wanted to say non-terminally ill because we wanted to focus a spotlight specifically on the category that our patients are in. Uh, it's not that we don't hold that for terminal illness. We, we hold with the AMA, which holds it for everything. But we wanted to have a special statement to say, this is not ethical psychiatry for the category of people that, that we treat. Uh, and that was a shot across the bow. Uh, I became quite a persona in non grata in the Dutch press over this back when it occurred uh, and the Belgian press, although I formed a whole group of allies as well uh, over there. Uh, and, you know, they said, you know, America should stay out of our business. What's the American Psychiatric Association doing, making opinions about what's going on in our country? But in fact, you know, uh, I think that medical ethics is uh, a universal principle. It's no more American to say, you know, psychiatrists shouldn't kill their patients than it is, you know, uh, you shouldn't have slaves, you know. Uh, if, uh, you know, in Sierra Leone, for us to say you shouldn't enslave people, you know, that's not necessarily being American, not understanding the culture of Sierra Leone. So, uh, so belonging, belonging and participating and helping leverage the power of organized medicine to push back, just like we're trying to leverage the power of organized medicine to deal with, and I'm sure you guys will have as one of your debates, if not, uh, you haven't thought of it yet, here's an idea uh, about uh, mid-level practitioners uh, and, you know, versus uh, MD psychiatrists and the practice of psychiatry and the untethering of mid-level practitioners to practice with full equivalency after 500 hours of training. Certain, certainly a hot topic. 15,000 yes, hours of training idea. that we have, right? <laughs> so, so, and organized medicine is really trying to educate and to, uh, to advocate and uh, engage in activism 
uh, about that issue. I think it's absolutely uh, critical that you be part of this issue as well, because uh, though you may not think it, it affects you personally, it will, and it's going, it's going to change the basic uh, meaning of what it means to be a psychiatrist for you, just like the mid-level practitioner thing is changing the basic meaning of what it means to be a psychiatrist. So uh, that's, that's uh, one important thing. And in terms of uh, society at large, uh, I want society at large to think about wh what price we are paying uh, by letting a, a privileged few opening the door to their acceptable suicide uh, against all of our efforts at suicide prevention, the price of the slippery slope, the removal of the taboo of against ordinary suicide, uh, and uh, the way in which uh, we're potentially diverting both human resources and money away from other solutions like palliative care and mental health care you know, there is a very uh, infamous case of a woman in, in Oregon who wanted, who had uh, terminal cancer and she wanted some additional chemotherapy to be able to attend, I think it was a wedding or graduation uh, of, uh, of her grandchild and uh, Medicaid uh, refused to approve uh, coverage for more chemotherapy to get her there, but they approved the uh, uh, $500 for the box of barbs. So, you know, we, we need anecdotes like that uh, to be stood up alongside of, you know, the happy wine tasting uh, assisted suicide parties mm. that the New York Times loves to report. Well, on. you know, one thing that really stuck out for me in this debate, and other than the, the rich amount of information that we just learned is how inspiring it is um, for us to be hearing about your advocacy and what it means to be an advocate as a professional. Thank you. Um, and so that's something that really stuck out for me. So, and I appreciate you for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, it's certainly been very educational. I'm sure our audience enjoyed this episode as well. Jonathan, any last words as we come to a conclusion? No, just completely agree with you. It's a matter of doing what's the, the right thing to do rather than what's easy to do. And, and, you know, as you describe, Dr. Comrade, the, the kind of the enemies that you've made from this, but at, at the same time, um, that this is something that is so important to you and, and for the society as a whole for you to continue doing it, um, it is inspiring. You know, it makes, it does make me want to speak up more myself. Well, thank you. I think that, uh, you all being inspired in this way, uh, actually helps to fortify me and inspire me. Uh, in this uh, very challenging uh, uh, slope that I'm trying to climb back up uh, with the medical profession. Thank you, so Dr. Thank Conrad. you so much for inviting me. Visit us at psychdebates.com, the home of mental health debates, discussion, and education. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to our podcast. Visit us at psychdebates.com where we are developing a platform for the important discussions about mental health and get access to our episodes, get a sneak peek of future episodes and coming narrative projects. Subscribe to our newsletter and leave us comments or recommendations for future episodes.